0: This is Acts 20, verse 17 through 27. You can look in your Bibles, or I think it'll be on screen for you. Uh, The Scripture says, Now from Miletus he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is uh, to worship with the saints this morning. Father, may it be said of this church and of us individually that we did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Father, your word is our life. Uh, And and we we yearn for it this morning. Uh, So may we hear it afresh. This morning, may we see what Christ has done for us, Father, this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you do that in this place and all over this city? Father, we pray for believers all over the world this morning that don't get to share in a gathering like this Uh, for the nations, Lord for the believers that are scattered, that are suffering, that are being persecuted, that have been kidnapped, that have been beaten, because they're not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus in their place where you've sent them. So Father, would you give them an extra dose of grace this morning as they suffer for you, as they show Christ to their captors. I pray for their families that we'd strengthen them Lord, would you make yourself known through the many sufferings that are happening all over this world. Father, we pray for this city. Lord, that your spirit move in a big way in Spartanburg. Lord, that you would save every soul in this city. You've done it before. You did it in Nineveh. Lord, and I want to ask you to do it here in Spartanburg. Would you use us in whatever way you see necessary? Uh, that you would give our people a boldness to walk into their workplaces, Lord, this week and, and share the hope, the good news of Jesus Christ with their co workers, with their neighbors, with their families. Uh, Lord, would your name be lifted up high this morning? Father, thank you for Shane. Uh, would you speak through him to us? Would your spirit use the words of Scripture to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate rebellion? to heal relationships this morning. It's only by the power of your word that that will happen, Father. So would you do that in this room this morning? In Christ's name, amen. Amen.
1: It's a privilege and joy to be with you this this morning. Um, I guess as a guest speaker, the the proper protocol would probably be just to dip our toes in the water a little bit. But that's not what Richard does, so that's not what I'm going to do. We're going to dive right in. So if you'll do something with me, will you imagine... Something with me. This isn't kooky or weird. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes and feel some weird going on in your head. Okay. So just picture yourself surrounded by people that you care deeply about. These are people that you've you've invested your life in their lives. They've invested in you. They've, They've loved you. They cared for you. These are the kind of people that their very presence brings you comfort and brings you joy. What if I told you that you'd never see these people again, but you could have one last time to speak to them? what would you say to them? What would your parting words be? Would you tell them how to find the best online deals during a holiday weekend? Would you tell them your secret family recipe? Or would you exhort and encourage and admonish them to find a spouse who will change their role at toilet paper when it goes out? Now, that's not us. That's not our problem at home. We're green. We don't even have toilet paper. All right, so I'm just kidding. You're gonna think I'm really weird now. All right, had to loosen you guys up a little bit. All right. But seriously, you're going to share something of utmost significance. Your last words are going to be something of encouragement, of admonition, affection, or the like. Whatever you say is going to have weight. And it's going to echo in the ears of the people you love for years to come because of the moment that you're sharing with them. That's the situation Paul is in during our text today the one Dan just read. He knows that this will be the last time that he sees this group of men, these brothers, he's invested in them. He brought the gospel to Ephesus. He planted a church with them. He matured them into leaders, and this is the last time he's with them. And so essentially he's saying to these brothers, this is the last time I'll be with you. The Holy Spirit is moving me in a way where I will never see you again. So I want to share my heart with you one last time. Now, you might ask, there's two questions that you could be asking right now, depending on where you are with God in your seats. One is, I'm not a Christian. I'm just investigating. I'm asking questions. Is that echoing back there, Dean? We're okay? It's uh, okay. Sorry, guys. This is what happens when you don't preach in years. Um, You start hearing things, right? Okay, so two questions that you could be asking. One is, I'm not even a Christian. He's talking to Christians. Paul is clearly talking to followers of Jesus. So what does this have to do with me? The other one is, I am a Christian, but I'm not an elder. He's talking to elders. So again, what does this have to do with me? The beauty of this text is that it's relevant to every single person in this room today. Because what Paul is doing, he's giving a firsthand account of what it means to live as a follower of Christ. So if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus and live as a follower of Jesus, this is a beautiful text for us to study today. So let's dive right in. At the center of our text is a, is a passage that can be read as Paul's mission or purpose statement. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There's something that has gripped Paul's life in a way that he doesn't value his life in the way most of us do. He's not concerned with self preservation, but with gospel proclamation, with Christ exaltation. And that's unique. So to understand why, I think our text gives us three things that I want to highlight. Three things I want to highlight to to learn why Paul lives this way. Gospel-informed values, gospel-directed living, and gospel assurance. So what values did the gospel give him? How did it tell him how to live? And what assurance did it give him? Let's start with gospel-informed values. The first thing that we want to talk about is scripture or truth. And I mean truth found in scripture. All right, I'm just giving you two different ways to think of that. It's not your truth. It's God's truth as found in Scripture. Paul valued Scripture. He He was a highly esteemed Jew. He was trained in such a way that he likely memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament. When he writes to Timothy, this is what he says about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul was not selective in his his elevation of scripture. In other words, he didn't focus on the things that were comfortable for him. He didn't, he didn't pick and choose what was, what what was fit into his life. All right, you guys know people that do that. We struggle to do that, right? Every one of us in this room. He was also protective. He would regularly warn God's people to beware of false teachers who take what is good and twist it for their own purposes and their own gain. All of Scripture is used by God to mold and shape His people into who He's called them to be. And it's through Scripture, when Paul says in Acts 24, 2024, 20, t- I'm called to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Let's define gospel of God's grace using Scripture, and use Paul's words here. This is what he says to the Ephesians, "You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but because of His great love for us, God made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now we've, we've all heard people that, that speak of their salvation by saying, I was, I was drowning and God threw me a life preserver. Everybody's probably heard that. You can't find that in the Bible. What we just read is that you were dead. So if you wanna go with that illustration, whether, whether you're in a lake, an ocean, a pond, or a bathtub, I don't care, you're at the bottom and you're dead. And dead people do not reach up Dead people do not bring themselves back to life. The Bible says that God reached down and grabbed you, breathed life into you, and transformed your life in a way that he actually uses you in his kingdom. Paul says that that we are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared that we should walk in them. It's a beautiful reality that not only am I rescued from my sin by the one who created the entire world, but I'm now called to be an agent in that world with God for his purposes. And I don't do it alone. He gives me a family. You're sitting among family right now. He gives you a family to walk with you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to build you up. All of us carried by the very grace that saved us from our sins and it's going to bring us into eternity with God. So the story of the Bible is not about me getting to God. It's God coming to his people over and over and over again. Ultimately sending his son to, to live the perfect life we could not live to die the death that we deserve to die. And through his sacrifice, we were reconciled to God and given an opportunity to participate in God's kingdom as it advances in this world. That's the gospel of God's grace. That's the story of the Bible. That's what Paul embraced in his life. The second value I want to talk about this morning is, is Paul's value of people, his value of people. Now, I realize that that sounds kind of cliche, right? Here's another guy at church talking about people, loving people, right? But that's significant. His love of people is unique and it's significant. Paul had a deep affection for people, which is a result of his understanding. Go back to scripture again. Scripture's the anchor for Paul. God says in Genesis 1, I'm making people in my image. Because of that, means they have worth. They have value, every single person. And so they're to be loved and cherished. Paul gave his life so that that others might, might know God and grow in relationship with God through Jesus. And Paul wasn't selective in his love for people. All right, I'm selective in who I want to be around, right? I don't know about you guys, but Paul was not selective. He was informed by the entirety of Scripture. So he loved people of all races, of all classes. He loved introverts. He loved extroverts. They had bad breaths, stinky feet. He didn't care. He didn't care. He wanted to be with people. And he loved them in a way that I really, honestly, it's hard for me to relate to. It's hard for me to relate to He In another letter, he speaks of loving people as a nursing mother cares for her children. As a nursing mother cares for her children. Even if you've only seen it on TV. That's a powerful image. That's powerful, significant love. That's how Paul loved people. And he didn't just speak words at people. He didn't just talk to people, but he walked with them. He immersed themselves in their lives. The first thing he says to these elders, you know how I lived among you, so call me out if I'm lying. He lived among them. He was with them. His presence was with them because he genuinely loved them. Now, of course, these are not all Paul's values. There are only two that I just want to draw out of our text. But these and many others moved Paul to live in a way that I want to explore now. To talk about gospel-directed living is to ask the question, how did Paul live as a follower of Jesus? All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not as good as Richard with PowerPoints, so just bear with me, okay? So just forget the humility's up there. Can you guys forget that for a minute? All right, so to talk about gospel-directed living is, is, is to simply say, how did Paul live as a follower of Jesus? And the reason this is so important to ask is because as Christians, we are called to be embodied apologetics, in other words, our lives should demonstrate that there is a living God and he rules and reigns over the earth and he is active today. And people should see that and hear that through our lives. They should know that the grace of God is working in and through us and in the world by just looking at our lives. So let's look at, let's look at Paul's life as a model of this. First, Paul lived with humility. Now you can look at it. Paul lived with humility. He had a healthy view of himself, a healthy view of of God, and a healthy view of others. He knew that he had no place in God's kingdom apart from God's grace. Here's, here's what he says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Other translations say, I am the, he, he says, I am the chief of sinners. We don't deserve anything but separation from God. Paul knew that. All else is grace. So said, I don't know your sin. I um, really don't want to know it. Not that I don't love you, but it's just, I mean, that's, you know, I, I know mine. That's what I need to know is mine. That's what I mean. I know my sin. And it's dark, it's, it's ugly, it's extensive, it's more than you can imagine. But God's grace is overwhelmingly powerful in my life, and it's overwhelmingly powerful in your life, in all our lives. There's another way that, to say this. Tim Keller says it well. He says, the gospel is this. We are more wicked than we ever dare believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ Than we ever dared hope. Now, when you have this posture, you realize the utter depravity of your sin and the the absolute infinite grace of God. It changes how you relate to God and others. In terms of God, if you don't realize what you deserve from God, if you don't realize the gift that He's given you, you'll think He needs you to advance His kingdom. So you'll, you'll work on your timeline when it's convenient for you, when it's comfortable for you. God needs me. Instead, we should realize that the creator of the world has adopted me into his family. And so I serve. I'm asking God, when can I serve? How can I serve? What can I do? Where can I do it? I don't need the why because I just said it. The creator of the world has adopted you into his family. So you serve. It's a privilege to serve God. It's a privilege. And if you understand the gospel, you no longer look down on others because you realize you can't. You have no right to. I just talked about my sin. We all have sin. We all struggle. We're no better than one another. Humility positions us all as recipients of God's grace, who are no more deserving than our neighbor, our coworker, or a friend. And because of that, it beckons us to love them with the same grace that has captured our heart. So Paul lived with humility. He also lived with boldness endurance and intentionality. This is kind of a big lump together right here. We're gonna hang here for a second. Boldness, endurance, and intentionality. So what, what, our, what Paul says, he says, I serve the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Earlier in Acts, Paul was actually stoned to what they thought was death. So they dragged him outside his city and they left him. You know what this guy did? He gets up, and he doesn't go get help somewhere else. He goes back into that city and preaches the gospel again. During the course of his ministry, he was whipped, he was flogged, he was beaten. Paul was bold when faced with persecution, and he endured immense hardship to proclaim the love of Jesus. And through all this, his intentionality is remarkable. He says that that he declared and he taught. That's the distinction that, that to me Sounds like broad gospel proclamation and deep, intimate discipleship. Paul proclaimed the gospel to many and taught many how to walk with God. He also uses the phrases in public and house to house. Again, indicating a level of intentionality to invest in life, his life and others. This is public, but he's saying, I talked to you publicly, but then I went to your house and your house and your house and your house. The level of intentionality here is incredible. He longed to see Christ formed in them. And it's because of this longing that he didn't hold back. He told them what was encouraging. He also told them what was challenging, what was hard to hear. He rebuked them when necessary. Anything that was profitable is what he says. Anything that was profitable. Paul is so confident that he's given all of himself to them that later in our text, he claims to be innocent of the blood of all. Innocent of the blood of all. This is a reference to Ezekiel. This is what God is, is, is calling Israel to do in the Old Testament. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Now, here's the inverse. But if you do warn the wicked person, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. So if the messenger shares truth and people don't turn from evil, they are punished, but the messenger is not held responsible. That's what Paul is saying here. He said, I've given you everything. I've taught you. I've loved you. I've invested in you. If you're not walking with God, your blood is not on my hands. My hands are clean. Is that how we live? Are we that determined, that intentional? Are we willing to suffer for the gospel? There are so many opportunities that each of us can take and so many sad reasons we don't. And please hear, I'm not talking at you. I'm convicted with you. My job now literally takes me from house to house to house. I don't even have to try to go from house to house. If I want to take the text literally, I'm there. But how often am I intentional with the people in that house that I'm I'm engaging as I'm there? I'm there. My, my gospel intentionality and urgency is about the same as my four-year-old's urgency when I ask him to put his shoes on in the morning so we can take his other brother and sister to school. It's like World War III, but we're on like World War 90 right now. I mean, it's miserable when you ask him. He's just fighting, kicking, and squirming, and screaming, throwing stuff at you. That's how I fight and squirm and fuss to avoid following God's call. That's my sense of gospel urgency right now, so I'm convicted If you're convicted, I'm convicted with you. And when I think about why many of us might share that that struggle and, and, and fail to be intentional in proclaiming the gospel, at least two reasons come to mind. First, we feel inadequate or unqualified. Right. So, well, I might say, well, I don't have the right training, or I'm not the most eloquent communicator. You know, I don't have the cool evangelistic tools, so I, I don't know. Or, you know what, it, it actually, I think it just confuses people when I talk about God, because I just kind of jumble it up. So it's just better for God if I don't do it. You know? And listen, I, I think those are all valid emotions to have. But, but here's the reality. Here's what God asks us to do. Just tell your story. Just tell your story. If God has captured your heart by his grace, you have a story. You have a story to tell. To testify to the grace of God is simply to be a witness to that story. In John 9, you can read this later. The blind man, Jesus heals a blind man, gives him sight. And Pharisees and others are coming up to him, and they're challenging him about Jesus and asking him all these questions. He says, guys, 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 I, I don't know the answers to your questions. I, I just know I was blind, and now I see, and he did it. That's all I know. That was the story of God's grace in his life. That's what God's asking you to do. Tell the story of God's grace in your life. Another reason, and I think probably the main reason that many of us fail to testify to God's grace, is that we subconsciously make a false distinction. And it puts us on the sidelines of of ministry. Now, here's, here's what I mean. Some of us are tempted to look at Paul as a missionary example or a professional missionary and conclude that this part of the sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm not called to South America, I'm not called to India, I'm not called to those places in the United States where the, the gospel is more needed, right? And we stereotype that and, and pointing out a stereotype. To reduce Paul's example to this would, would, is, is tragic. It's not, it's not what he would want. It's not what he would want. Yes, he was often provided for by churches as, he, as, as a, essentially a vocational missionary. His livelihood was provided by churches as he ministered, ministered and shared the gospel. That's true. But he also regularly worked a marketplace job. So I don't know if they had nine to five back then or what it was, but during that time and after that time, Paul is intentional in building up people for the sake of the gospel, for sharing the gospel, for being, being intentional in proclaiming it. So friends, there's a need for the gospel in every corner of the earth. And God calls us to proclaim it. He gives us a privilege to proclaim it. There's a need in the most affluent pockets of our city as much as, if not more, than the poorest parts. So, so what do you do with this now? You're saying, okay, well, so what? Walk across the street to your neighbor. Talk to your coworker. Be intentional with your family and friends. They need to hear the hope of the gospel. They need to hear that they were not created by accident, but they're fearfully and wonderfully made. And their creator sent his son to die for their sins. Tell them they have a place in God's story because they do. We are all called to be witnesses who share the goodness of God. The last example I want to illustrate is that of spirit-constrained obedience. Spirit-constrained obedience. I love that Paul says, I was constrained by the Spirit. It shows this deep connection with God through the Holy Spirit. This is what... I'm going to read the text to you here. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Literally, the Spirit has grabbed him and convicted him to go down a path of much suffering and much hardship. And looking at this reality, we see Paul's, the first thing he doesn't value, and that's his own life. Our text indicates that Paul has literally evaluated and considered the situation almost like an accountant would pour of finances and get to, to a reconciled place in his analysis. That's what Paul has done regarding his life. And he doesn't deem it to be important outside the purposes God has for it in the service of his kingdom. Not building a kingdom of me, <laughs> not fighting for self-exaltation. That's unheard of in our time. I mean, this is the age of social media and the selfie generation, right? (laughs) Listen, I never thought I'd live in a world where people post pictures that are breakfast, lunch, and dinner online for others to look at. I mean, why? What what makes you so important that I want to see that? Or that every time you go to a majestic, I mean, the Grand Canyon is beautiful enough. I don't need to see your face doing this in front of it. All right, listen, I'm exaggerating for a fact. If, Please don't send emails to Richard about this. Um, if you're convicted right now, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. Listen, I, um, I really, the reason I'm exaggerating it, this, ever since sin entered the world, look at the Tower of Babel. Why are they building a tower? Because they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? Ever since sin entered the world, we have been about building our own kingdoms, Social media now just gives us a magnifying glass for that. That's why. That's the reason. I, that's the reason I exaggerated right there. Okay, is to to point out that that, is, that has always been the direction of our world. That is still the direction of our world. That is the direction of our sinful hearts. So if we're going to live differently, how? How can we actually live differently? And I think the answer is actually pretty simple. It's hard. It's hard, but I think it's simple. Here's what Paul writes to the Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. Torn between life and death. How? Because if he lives, he lives to know God and make God known. If he dies, he is with God. So either way, Whether he's proclaiming Christ or he's spending eternity with Christ, he gets Jesus. Paul gets Jesus, and that's his ultimate hope and joy, to be with Jesus. Whose kingdom do you want to be a part of? Yours or God's? The answer to that question determines how you live. And I'm not talking about social media and selfies. Those have a a place. I'm talking about your life. Everything you do? What's your life driving toward? You can build your own kingdom and it'll last for a while. Or you could be a part of the greatest story ever told that's still being written today and that will be celebrated throughout eternity. Paul got it. He said, I want Jesus. In life or death, I want Jesus, I'm in his kingdom. You have to answer that question for yourself this morning. Now, Paul was obedient. we talk about spirit-constrained obedience. What, what was he obedient to? All right. We know that he was called to, to testify. His course of ministry was to testify to the, to the gospel of the grace of God. All right. But we can even rewind back to when God actually commissions him. After his conversion, Luke records that for us in Acts 9. This is what Paul says, or excuse me, what God says about Paul. He, Paul, is to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the calling God gave Paul is that you're going to get to proclaim the gospel to all types of people. And I'm going to take you places to do it. You're going to go all around. You get to be with kings, be with those in poverty. You get to, to, that's your privilege, Paul. You get to do that. And by the way, the only thing I'm really guaranteeing you during this time is you're going to suffer. Many times, many ways, many places, you're going to suffer. That's, that was Paul's calling. That was the calling that he was obedient to. And his obedience had a cost. The only certainty that he was promised, other than that God would use him, was that he would suffer. Here's how it's going to affect you, Paul. You're going to suffer. His obedience had a great cost. It cost him relationships. In our text, he tells these elders, you're never going to see me again. you never see me again. cost him relationships. It cost him comfort. Afflictions await me in every city. That's not comfortable. It's the absence of any comfort. And ultimately, it cost him his life. We know through historical documents, Paul was executed for proclaiming the gospel. Now, what was uncertain about his calling? He had no clue where God would take him. He had no clue. So Paul said, when he said yes, don't you, can't you imagine how many questions he had? And he had no answers to those questions. He didn't need the answers to those questions. He just said yes, yes. How's this answer to God's calling? What's our response to God's calling? It's a a challenging thought, isn't it? When someone knocks on our door, I'm excited to see who it is. When I pull up in the driveway after work and there's a package on the front step, I can't wait to tear it open. Even though I were on Amazon two days ago, I know exactly what it is, but I want to see it. I'm excited. But when God calls, when God knocks on our heart, We're reluctant. We often pull back. We start to analyze everything and and, and think think about what it's going to cost me and make a list of all the things that following God's call is going to cost me and hold it up to God and say, here's what it would cost me to follow you, God. I'm going to say something that might surprise you. I think you should do that. I think you should make that list. It's a productive exercise if you then follow his call. If you make that and then turn away, it's rebellious and it's sinful, okay? But make that list. What what you're doing is you're considering the call, you're counting the cost, and you're saying, God, you are worth more. I might lose all these things, but I'm gonna know you more. I'm gonna know you more, and that is better, and that is better. In doing so, we focus on the one Reason, the one reason, there might be so many reasons we should not obey. It's gonna be so painful. We're gonna lose things. It might be hard for our families. The one reason we should obey is God. In obedience, we get more of God. Now, the last thing I want to highlight this morning is gospel assurance. And I need that word assurance right now. I don't know about you the assurance that the gospel gives us. To think of God challenging us to live in this way, to give us this example and not give us the grace to do so. Help be untrue to his nature and praise God that he is not a God who leaves us on an island, but a grace that rescues us, sustains us, and carries us and propels us and pulls us forward. By his mercy, he doesn't let us go. And that's what makes Christianity unique. In no other religion in the world does the one who demands our obedience simultaneously give us the power to obey. Aren't you so glad that he does? I am. I am so glad that that's the God we love, that we serve, that we're privileged to be a part of his family. Paul has challenged the elders on how to live in light of the gospel and he's leaving them for good. And this is the the assurance he gives them. And now I commend to you God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The same grace that rescued me from the depths of sin and brought me back to God is the same grace that will make me more like his son. God wants us to love what he loves and hate what he hates. But on our own, we move in a different direction, we move the opposite way. Grace is what draws us to him, and grace is what keeps us there. And grace gives us hope in the darkest of circumstances. I, I would classify the remaining years of Paul's life after this speech as miserable. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was in prison. I've told you he was ultimately killed. But through it all, he writes letter after letter after letter, proclaiming to other churches, proclaiming God's goodness and grace. How could he be so sure of God's grace that it gave him such hope and strength? It's the same reason that we can be sure of it extending to us today. God's grace comes to us through the finished work of Jesus. God's grace does give us hope. We can be assured of its comfort by looking to the cross. We look to the moment that God turned away from his son and know that because he did, he will never turn away from us. Because the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus, the fountain of grace never ceases to pour over us. The obedience of Jesus gives us the grace to obey today. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story. He's in agony, emotional, painful agony. And he says, God, if you will, take this cup from me but not my will, but yours be done. He knows that he's going to be crucified soon, so he's pleading with relief, yet submitting and surrendering to the greater purposes that his death and ultimately his resurrection would achieve. In that submission, in that obedience, he conquered sin, death, and the grave, and his suffering is a guarantee that grace will forever be extended to those who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. We receive grace through Jesus The one who can relate to any degree of suffering we encounter and who like a brother, like a loving brother comforts us in the midst of ours. God in his grace, it's been enough for Paul. He knows it will be enough for these brothers he's talking to and he knows it's enough for us today. It will be enough to continue to make us more like Jesus, to enable us to obey, to follow God to hard places. God's grace is enough because it gives us God. And God, not comfort, not convenience, not earthly treasure. God is all we need. Let's pray for his grace now. Father, we are indebted to your grace, God. The very breath we have is because of your grace and mercy, God, and to think that beyond that, you enable us to know you and be a part of your family is just remarkable, it's remarkable. And then to give us the privilege to advance your kingdom, God, that you would call us to alongside you. You don't need us, God, but you choose to use us, and we are so thankful for that. Father, forgive me when I turn from your call. By your grace, would you give me the strength to say yes. Would you convince me that knowing you more is worth more than the earthly treasure or my comfort, my convenience? Father, Paul's life is an example that's weighty. It's heavy. But we know that in your grace, the same grace that you gave him is the same grace you extend to us today, God. So give us hope that that grace is gonna continue to move us toward you, to know you, to love you, to grow in our relationship with you. In your son's name, who achieved that grace for us, we pray, amen.